Welcome to Inspired by Her, the podcast that will give you the inspiration, motivation, and tips for success from some of the top executives, CEOs, and influencers from around the globe. With your host, serial entrepreneur and named one of the most influential Filipina in the world, Kate Hancock. We are live. Hi, everyone. This is Kate, and I'm very excited. I have here Mel Lim. You can, you can see me, right? It's, it's Yes, you're lighting. clear. Yes. <laughs> so I'm so honored to have you here. I know I met you at the uh, EO event in Napa Valley. I think that's the first time yeah. I yeah. met you. But I never get, re- get really get a chance to know you, so I'm very excited for you to be here. Well, Mel, everyone, is a, a serial entrepreneur. She's a keynote speaker, best-selling author, and top global award winner. She awarded the Top 50 Tech Visionary Award and was named among the 250 most inspiring female entrepreneurs. I don't know if you could have better value than that. <laughs> it's too much, it's too much, people all the flop. <laughs> all right, Mel, for anyone who do not know you, can you briefly introduce yourself? I am a um, founder and CEO of Maspera Group. It's an innovation and brand consultancy. And I'm also the CEO of M Sovereign, a media platform. So um, just in case you guys don't know, Maspera Group, um, are my innovation and brand consultancy, you know, our purpose is to help um, organizations, startups, small business owners to corporations to redefine their innovation framework, business models, and brand strategies, and we help them create possibilities and opportunities, right, um, by redesigning their strategic priorities, their products and services, and, and in hopes that this will enable them to respond swiftly, pivot, accelerate growth, um, and, and thrive and achieve global impact using creativity, design, and technology. Um, and of course, to do all that in a very sustainable and responsible way. And then M Sovereign, my second company, is a is my media platform, and I created it just because over the years, I you know I I wrote a book and I was asked to speak a lot, and um, it's more of like my media platform, and it, it enables me to help people achieve equanimity and find meaning in their work um, through mindfulness. And, uh, and also, you know, in the hopes of uh, reframing their approach to value and impact creation. Um, so that's that. And I'm also a proud single mom of two boys, Evan and Tyler. Evan just turned nine yesterday and Tyler is six, although I wish that he was still five. <laughs> yeah, they grow so much, right? I know, and I stop it. Stop it. I can't hug you like this anymore. You know, when you're like this, you know, and now you're like, oh, you're so big. <laughs> All right. So you're, you're a single mom. You run two companies. You run this multi-million dollar company. How do you do that? I need to, I can't wait to really get to know you more. Um, so tell me what was the city, town you grew up like in like? So, um, as you can tell, I, I, I'm not from here, obviously. I don't have the American accent. I, although over the years, I've tried to <laughs> refine my American accent by introducing 
dude into my vocabulary. But um, I originally grew up in Penang, Malaysia, a small island located northwest of the peninsula of Malaysia. And it's a small island, maybe about, at that time, maybe less than a million. I think today it's about 1.5 million population. Okay. Um, for those of you who don't know, Penang or Malaysia, um, it's a British colony since the 1800s. So I grew up attending, you know, the all-girls convent school managed and run by Roman Catholic missionaries slash nuns. Um, I have a very diverse family background. Um, my dad was a Roman Catholic. My mom's a Buddhist. I have a Muslim aunt, an Orthodox Jewish aunt. I, I we celebrate Christmas, Chinese New Year, the whole thing. We're like, you know, the colors of Benetton. <laughs> So you and, have a lot of different holidays then. Yes, and and because of the diversity of culture in Malaysia, you know, having Muslim friends, Indian friends, Chinese friends, Eurasian friends, you know, we we celebrate all of those different traditions and and, and, and cultures, right? Mm -hmm. And so and also because of that, I'm able to speak Bahasa Malayu, which is a native language. I speak Hokkien, Cantonese, a little bit of Mandarin, and of course English. And so Malaysia has this kind of rich European colonization history. And I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure how that is. I don't know much about the Filipino or the Philippine history, but you can probably, we can share stories. But as you know, in that particular part of the, the world, um, there was a lot of colonization. First, it was the Portuguese and the Dutch and the British. And of course, later on, we had the Japanese occupation. Mm -hmm. And Malaysia didn't get it, gain its independence from Britain until 1957. So I'm the product of this Malaysian-born Chinese. It's like a product of post colonialism, right? Uh, I, I believe I'm more well-versed in British history than American history. <laughs> but after living here for almost two decades now, I think I'm finally caught up with American history. But I still like, you know, I still follow a little bit of the British tradition. I love my afternoon tea and my biscuits and my Marmite, you know, things. <laughs> what is that? Marmite. Marmite is, is this black yeast. And it's it's like a savory spread that you put on bread, you know, like a toast. I usually serve it with uh, porridge. Mm -hmm. I know it's it's really yummy. I love it. No. <laughs> and, I, and I'm into spam. I know a very weird taste, but it's yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, so you said you move out here twenty years ago. So where did you grow up in Malaysia? The whole your all your. Yeah, so I so I grew up, you know, until I was nineteen. So my my primary and secondary education is in Malaysia, and then I moved here for my tertiary education when I was nineteen. Yeah, how is it like moving from Malaysia and being new in the U.S.? Oh, it was uh, it was very interesting. I have to say. Um, it wasn't as smooth as I wanted it to be. And I remember, uh, because I was, I grew up with British education my entire life. So I was prepped to go to, to London to get my um, education at the London Institute, which is another art school. But then I ended up applying to several art schools here in the U.S., including uh, RISD, Parsons Art Center, which is in Pasadena. And I remember asking my parents, like, can I, can I go? Can I pursue my education in design? And they were like, 
you know, these are very traditional Chinese parents, right? They're like, well, designers don't make money. You got to figure something out. I'm like, how about architecture? It's design, math, you know, and I was really great at that. And, and so they agreed and, and we had to choose college. And I remember I was telling my mom, well, I really wanted to go to Parsons mm -hmm. and like, in New York City, not so good. And then I'm like, okay. And, 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 and you know, our perception of the U.S., as at least my perception of the U.S., it was through me watching movies. Melrose Place, Dynasty, Knott's Landing. So I do not have a great sense of law and order. You know, you, you, so when I told my mom, I'm going to go to New York City, she's like, law and order, you can't read. And then so here I am, like she bought me a ticket and then I ended up in California. Mm -hmm. um, so she has this idea that Beverly Hills 902 and it would be better for my daughter <laughs> to come here. So yeah, so I came to California, um, attended Art Center School of Design. Um, since I was 19, but then three months after I had arrived, the ASEAN uh, 97 economic crisis hit and mm -hmm. both my parents went bankrupt. So I remember having this conversation with both of them and they said, you have an open ticket to, to go home, to come home, or you can stay there, but you have to do it on your own. And I was young, you know, I was like, I'm like, go, I'm not going home. This is an opportunity for, for me to make something for myself. So mm -hmm. I decided to stay, but not realizing what was waiting for me, which is complete independence. I was financially independent when I was 19. No safety net, no parents, no friends on my own. And I didn't have any money. And of course, my father gave me enough just to pay the first semester's tuition, mm -hmm. but it's a private art school. It's like 10 grand a semester, that eight semesters altogether. So you're talking about 80,000 just for tuition. Okay. And then that's not including, you know, living, right? Yeah. And, and then I didn't have a lot. So I ended up doing all sorts of stuff to put myself through school. I got, yeah. I got um, three uh, teaching assisting jobs in school. I worked full-time in an architecture firm, and then I went to school full-time in the evening. And I, I carried about 21 to 24 units because I was paying for my own schooling. I thought, fuck it, if I'm gonna pay <laughs> for myself, I wanna maximize my, my, my learning. Uh -huh. uh, so I was pretty much navigating everything on my own. I had no elders to, to ask permission. And so every decision from then onwards were from, well, you know, they were my own decision, which meant I had to live with them if it was a mistake and, or if it's good, then I'll, I could celebrate it on my own. But it was tough. It was tough, you know, imagining working a hundred hour a week and going to school full time and trying to get scholarship. It was a lot. I could imagine. Before we're gonna go back to that when you're starting your business, so what moment from your childhood are you most proud of? Oh my God. I have I have I have many, many proud moments uh, as a child. You know my sister and I were raised by a single parent, by my mom. So we were pretty independent when we were growing up. I remember my you know, my my sister and I used to travel back and forth flying from Penang, the island, to KL, which is the main city, mm -hmm. uh, to visit my, my father, you know, on, on the weekends. And I remember I was five years old, she was probably nine, ten years old, and we would be like little kids traveling, flying all the time on our own. And by the time I turned 12, I had already traveled so much, just 
with her and with my mom who went on a lot of business trips to Hong Kong and Thailand. So those, those experiences, I think, are the ones that I feel like I'm most proud of because it really opened up my eyes to the world outside of my little island, right? And I get to see business, I get to see people, I get to see cultures, and it really shaped the person of who I am today. Yeah. Amazing. So your your mom is like bringing you doing these deals and oh my god, yes. Oh, I have fun stories to to share about my mom. And uh, I remember I was nine years old, and she brought me to one of her business deals. It was and usually all these deals happen in a karaoke bar somehow. Wow. <laughs> Tell me what was your mom's business then? Okay, so my mom owned um, an interior design. A furniture making uh, like a manufacturer slash interior design shop and she had over hundreds of employees and she was like you know the supplier and maker for like a ton of American brands like Baker furniture you know so she was manufacturing and making furniture and she was designing a lot of hotels and so I get to see my mom really like you know she would take me to all these karaoke meetings and in the private rooms right and you have all these like all Asian men, you know, and she was like the only female executive. And, and I remember sitting there and I would watch her kind of like trying to negotiate deals. And, and of course that's Hennessy, XO and all that. And I would watch and see how she would navigate situ, you know, sticky situations as a woman in business amongst the wolves. Wow. And I would just watch her and she would always be so gracious and calm but firm and she would always get the deals done and I was, so I was I was really fascinated by that of course you know my mom being a Chinese mom I had to learn how to do sales accounting and all that during the weekends <laughs> I mean I think that that's how I learned about business was through watching her and being with her yeah it's amazing how like I I kind of relate to that I was shaped by you know, I grew up in a family business where everyone is hustling and we work 24 hours and that's the only, you know, that's the only thing I know. So I do the same thing. Yeah. And yeah, and I think it really helps you, gave you that confidence that, you know, you could do it because they've, you're, you know, you're, you're on it at the very, yes very early age. Yeah, you're being shaped. You're being mm -hmm. shaped like, you know, it's almost like my 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 late mother was grooming me and my sister at an early age to kind of somehow take over her business. Uh, at least that was what she intended. Mm -hmm. and so we were both exposed to the, the good and the ugly side of entrepreneurship, right? I mean, my parents both were entrepreneurs, self-made entrepreneurs. My mom did not have college degree uh, so with my dad they were both self-made and my mom was the oldest I think of 13 siblings including the step siblings so she was the oldest and she did take care of everyone and she put herself through all these management training courses she was a salesperson and all the way to ended up having her own business and of course in any business the ups and downs some days we were really doing well and some days we were so broke some days we were bankrupt you know, and then to, to watch her make those decisions and to protect my sister and I, I, I don't even 
know if, if she really protected us. I think it's almost like we were exposed to it. It's like, there, we have no money, go figure it out. Or there, we have money, let's go eat. You know, <laughs> so it's like, it is what it is. There's no like um, hiding or shielding us from anything. It is what it is, and this is part of our lives. Yeah, you, you shared a little bit of deep um, childhood experience where you were, you would go to your dad's family and you're in the table. Can you tell me more about that? It was very- Yes, so, so you're at, you were asking like, what was my best memory? That, that was that, the, the traveling with my mom and my sister and all that was definitely my best memory. And of course I had really bad memory too. And I, and you know, my, my worst childhood memory was something I, I really had to work through as an adult and and i had to go to therapy for many years to heal that inner child you know you 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 know when i tell people these the story and i and i choose very carefully how to tell the story because taken out of context um it might be viewed as something really negative and I, i'm not undermining i'm not undermining that it was not but i'm also looking at how if I were to juxtapose all the achievements that I, I have gained today through, you know, to today, and you juxtapose against what I'm about to share with you, you can see how it led to that, right? There's always good coming out of something bad. So my sister and I openly talk about the abuse that we endured, you know, when we were younger, when we were growing up, we really didn't know that it was abuse or understood that it was bad. We thought it was really normal. So my mom and dad had to work full time and my they would usually drop us off at my grandparents house and on my dad's side and they would watch over us and our cousins while the adults went to work so every night at the dinner table with like 20 people you know how like asian families they have like so many people living in the same house <laughs> so there were like 20 of us in that same house adults and kids and every night after you know during dinner they would all eat in that big round table, they will all have their dinners. And my sister and I will cast aside and we were only fed after everyone else ate. So then every, every, so every time after everyone stood up and left, as soon as they stood up, my sister would scoop out a bowl of white rice onto my bowl. And then she would around to each of the plates left for eat. And she would pick apart the meat, you know, and then she would scoop it into my bowl and she would, you know, try to get some broth, you know, or soy sauce and she would pour over my bowl and she would give it to me first. And some days it was just plain soy sauce. And some days we were lucky we would have like, you know, leftover like fish, you know, whatever. We were lucky that we had white rice. So that's why we were thankful. Like at least we had rice. And, you know, and our, and our grandparents and uncles weren't very nice either. They would beat us. And my sister was the one who took most of the brunt. And even till today, she is like, still like my protector and my guardian. She's always, we call, I call her, you know, like the disapproving sister. I'm like, she's like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> she's like always protecting me. And, and so, you know, that was something that I had to kind of process during my adult life because I noticed that when I was uh, living in the U.S., I, I was a very hungry child too. I mean, till, you know, when I came here, I was so broke. My mom had sent me ramen noodle to last for, thir uh, I think it was 60 days of ramen. I would eat half a packet in the morning and half a packet at night. 
And then I would walk to school for four miles back and forth to school every day. And I was always hungry. And, but it was not like hungry like I was back then as a child. And I told myself, and I'm like, if I could endure the white rice for my childhood, I can endure the ramen, you know? Like it didn't really occur to me that I was hungry. I was like, ah, okay, I'm just gonna do it. And then I walk to school, I come back, you know, and then my roommates were nice enough to give me an egg. I could add egg to my ramen, you know? And, and of course, eventually I found friends and I, I found a really great friend who's still my friend today. Um, I get a shout out to him, Kin Dailo, thank you. And he was the one that in the evening would mind, buy me food. He's like, I'm coming over with boba and some noodles for you. <laughs> yeah, well, is this in California? Yeah, and this, he was the only Malaysian friend that I had found when I first landed in the U.S. And he was always this amazing friend that would always feed me. He's like, you're so skinny, you're always working, you're tired, I'm feeding you. So he'd come over and buy me food, watch like TV after that, you know. But it was nice, at least I had good people surrounding me. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, okay, so you're right after college, you work, um, you work yourself to school. Tell me about that first, what, what made you decide to open your own company? There are many reasons why I decided to open my own company. One of it, so I was in architecture for about eight years. You know, I always tell people I'm, I'm only 43, but I, I've lived seven lifetimes because I have lived such a rich life uh, and I was in architecture for about seven to eight years I worked full-time by the time I graduated I had a ton of job offers from all these amazing architecture firms and global brands that I get to pick and choose but ultimately what led me to opening up my own studio number one was because my ex and I, my ex and I had moved back to California we were in the Midwest we had moved back to California and I really didn't want to work for anybody at that time anymore I was tired I think I burned out I think by the time I turned 23 I had already designed casinos malls stadiums hotels you name it I've designed like multi-million dollar projects I was 23 I was done <laughs> and it's because I was working 100 120 hour work week I mean, anyone in architecture can tell you that's pretty normal, you know, but like to me, I just felt like I was done. And of course, being a minority, a woman in architecture was never easy. I've had had horrible stories of, of discrimination and sexual harassment along the way. And, and I'm not going to get into deets about this today, but it propelled me in a way where I go, I am not gonna let this shit happen again. I did not sacrifice this much to live, you know, to leave my country and to live a life this hard to do this. I, I, want, a, I want to have more control over my future. That's why I started my own studio. I love that, I love that. No, it's, um... so what is your typical day like now? Oh my God. We're having two kids. Still exhausting. <laughs> Still exhausting. But I have to say, um, you know, prior, prior to COVID-19, mm-hmm. my day, and as a single mom, and you know how it is as a mother, right? As a, uh, you know, my day typically started at 4.30 in the morning. I would wake up. <laughs> I get my meditation in. 
and then I'll go read my emails and news. I'll go watch the news. I'll listen to Bloomberg, whatever. And then I'll answer all my emails from my East Coast clients. And then I go make breakfast for my kids and I get them ready for school. And by 8.15, I'm back in. I work from home. So I'm back in the studio and I am having my team huddles, taking calls, meetings, reviewing my team's work, strategy, designing, and more meetings. And then in the afternoon, I go and pick the kids up or sometimes the nanny would go pick them up. Then we come, they come back, make them snacks, get them sorted, do their homework activities. And then, and then um, around like six-ish is where I fully check out from work. I would then play with them a little bit, catch up during, like, what did you do for school today? Can mama, you know, see what you guys have done? And then we would have bath time, which is really fun. And then dinner time and then story time. We would read a lot. Um, and then after they go to bed at 7.30, I know for a lot of people that's pretty early, but my mom's got shit to do. So <laughs> 7.30, they're in bed. And then my e my second evening shift, I call it my night shift, would start again. I would then work from 8 p.m. until midnight. Then I'll wake up at 4.30 in the morning again. That seemed like really a lot for people. Like sometimes when I get all these questions, how do you manage also? I tell them my day, they're like, the fuck out this is too much and I'm like well just just put it in context okay I have always woken up at 4 30 since I was like seven years old <laughs> it has always been in my DNA to do this so it's not abnormal just that I'm a ve I'm very efficient with my perfor performance I suppose <laughs> like with my productivity level I I'm, I keep them at in a tight schedule so as long as my day I get to do eight to ten hours of billable time and then I get about two to four hours of admin team management time and four to six hours of kids time. I'm happy. Now, during this pandemic, you get more work. <laughs> oh, okay. As of three weeks ago, I'm, I'm a full-time teacher, right? And then so now I have two children with entirely different curriculum that I have to manage. And I have to say, Kate, people think that I can do it all. I cannot do it all. I am not a good homeschool teacher. <laughs> No, it's hard. No, I can't. It's so hard. I, I struggle with that, right? I would I would get a long email from my kid's dad because their grades were like nothing on top of like I was working so much and I have to follow up with the kids. Like now I have set the schedule, like in the morning you have to do your homework and the you know in the afternoon you can start playing your yes. computer, right? Like yes. once you have those structured, but like you, we can't do everything perfectly. No. And, and, you know, this type A personality has to let go. I go like, okay, this is not normal for anyone. It's, it's, it's really hard for them. It is, it is hard for me. I, I found that my days were split up in chunks, you know, initially. And then one moment I was on a phone call talking, uh, you know, about strategic planning, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing is like, my little one is like, mama, how do I do this app? What is that? See sight words, and I'm like, oh shit! And I have to go and teach him the sight words, and I come on, and I try to pass by a CEO. Please don't lay off your staff. You know, it's like, it's like your brain just—it's like on different levels at all times, and that you have to be on because I'm I'm a highly paid consultant. I need to be on, but I couldn't be on because my mind was like, oh, did I upload that photo that he drew for the teacher? Did did I record it right? <laughs> so, so now I, what I do is, you know, I just. Out of the 12 things that the teachers send me, I just, as long as I hit eight, I think I'm happy. Now, you, you do consulting. Now, do you have clients overseas as well? 
Most of them are in the States. It's just that my clients are all over the world in the sense that their headquarters could be in Israel. Uh-huh. And then they have a, you know, they have the team here in the U.S. So I'm on different time zones. Mm-hmm. Hence my crazy work schedule because, <laughs> of, of, yeah, I'm on the back and call. I, I don't mind. I love it. In fact, I, I, I love engaging them. Mm-hmm. But yes, if I can sleep, I'll sleep. I'll take naps. And these days, I'm like those, you know how like when I was pregnant, I was always taking naps and I'm like, who the hell take naps? And then you're like, oh, I'm so tired. You know, your body is like so fat and so tired. Now I do that too. And I'm not pregnant. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, I need naps. <laughs> I just took a nap. <laughs> okay, so Mel, I, I know you. Okay, so what is the highest honor or award you've ever received? You got a lot. I got a lot. I... I'm an overachiever. That's my problem. So I feel like every award is amazing. I have a deep gratitude, you know, until the next one comes along. Okay, so so I'm very humble. But in my career as a, as a, as a designer, as an entrepreneur, business owner, whatever you call it, I've won over 150 industry accolades. I've appeared in over a thousand magazines, and and oddly enough, today, I don't feature much of that on my website or on my portfolio, nothing. I don't, I don't do that as much anymore. I've listed half of it on my LinkedIn. And, and, but there's one, there's one particular one that I, it's not an award, but it's a moment in my career mm-hmm. that I feel like it touched me the most. And I, I think it's purely because I was feeding Tyler. He was less than a year old then. And, and I was, you know, bottle feeding him. And I was watching uh, my client rang the bell at NASDAQ. And I could, I, I could just felt like an overwhelming pride, right? Look at your baby. And like, I wish I was in New York, but I chose not to go, you know, and you, and you watch your client ring the bell. And, and, if, and then I was telling people, if you had only known what it took to get there, the two years worth of work to get there, you would have cried too. And, and that moment, seeing all of my work plastered all over Times Square for the whole day. And then you just sit there quietly, you go like, wow, you know, who would have thought that this Malaysian-born little immigrant, right, who's so broke and so poor, <laughs> could have this much impact on businesses. And then so then I started tracing back like, oh my God, all these other clients of mine and all their successes it just helped me reframe and develop or maybe see things from through a different lens, what success means. Mm-hmm. And then I pretty much didn't thrive or care about the trophies and the awards and the accolades anymore. I just, for me, my new set of metric of success is just how big of an impact, you know, can I bring to my clients and you start measuring those things, right? You know, oh my God, I've raised hundreds of millions of dollars for my, for my clients. You know, how many jobs have I helped them create? How many products and services have I rolled out that have made impact in people's life? You know, the productivity level. And so you start looking at things and you start realizing the power of the work that you produce. And that alone shifted my mindset a lot and, and because I shifted my metrics of success, it also helped me align my company's core value and mission more. And, be, and once I do that, 
then it's almost like I'm attracting clients that can see that. It's like clients that can see through all the BS. And then the less I show off, the more they come. It's, it's fascinating to me how the universe is doing its work. <laughs> right. So um, what's your greatest failure so far? Oh my God, Kate, I have a lot, <laughs> but yes, there's one great failure. Um, you know, I, I try to, I try to, how do I put this? I, I have always seen my life as, a, a, as almost like a journey, right? You, you know, I, I have all these different chapters, you know, from, from my childhood, you know, being, being grown up in, you know, by, raised by a single mom and, and being poor, being rich, being poor, being bankrupt, and then, you know, having to do it on my own. And I've always seen that, you know, and I've gone through uh, 9-11, you know, the 97 crisis, the 9-11, and then 2008, building my teams scaling down, laying off people, rebuilding, firing clients, hustling for clients. You know, we've done it all. We are entrepreneurs. So you, you, you know that, right? You just, just the, the ups and downs and the merry-go-rounds. So I've always felt like I've earned my successes. Mm -hmm. But I have to say the most disappointing failure, I think for me, came, you know, came to this apex was in 2016 when, I, when my 16-year marriage ended. I think it was the most difficult thing I had to do in my entire life. And, and I think it's purely because at that time, Tyler was one, Evan was four, and whatever decision that I felt that I was making, I was making it for them too. And it wasn't like I could just go out with gun blazing and they, you know, F you, I'm going to do whatever I want. It's, it's more like, okay, whatever decisions I make today, it's going to have this huge impact on them. And, you know, and I was, I was, it was challenging because at the same time when I was going through my divorce, I had, I realized I had lost all of my elders. I, my, my late mother passed away. My late father had passed away. The, my, my nanny, the woman who raised me, she'd passed away at that same time. My godmother here passed away as well. So I, it's like all my elders were gone. So I, I, I felt like I was really alone. Like I had no one to get advice from uh you know and these are like sensitive times right because it's emotional you have children you have it's like the family issues like i you know the rest of the stuff that i had dealt with it was more for like external thing it's more like an achievement right it's 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 more like money grades you know accolades you know it, it's revenue but this is different this is personal and i felt really lost and my sister at that time was in new york she you know, she was trying every day checking in with me. Please tell me you're alive. I said, I'm alive. I'm alive. You know, I'm still alive. I'm okay. And during that process, the wealth that I had accumulated throughout working since I was 19 years old, it was dissolved. Right? Throughout the divorce settlement, it was gone. I, I woke up one morning. I had no money in my bank account, probably at $2.15 probably. And I was left with nothing. And I, I couldn't even afford groceries. I had hit rock bottom. That was my failure. I remember sitting in the car and I was crying because I was like, okay, I need to go buy food for the kids. What the hell do I do? I No credit, nothing. It was all frozen. It was done. 
And then I went to the, the kid's room and I, and I told my little son and I said, Alan, can mama crack open the piggy bank? <laughs> and then, can, I, can mama borrow money from you? But yes, mama. And then so I crack it open and then I help him help me roll up all the quarters into rolls, you know? I said, we're gonna roll it all up and we're gonna take it to the grocery store, we're gonna buy food, okay? And he's like, okay, okay. And then that moment, I realized I had become my late mother, which is single mom, and my late father, who had done the same thing to my sister and I when he moved out of the house, when he was broke. He borrowed money from a piggy bank. So I had become my mother and my father in one night. And on top of that, I had to figure out how to make payroll for my team how to make a mortgage payment, how to make tuition and childcare payments. Life still had to happen somehow. And it was just so much. It was so much, Kate. It was a lot for anyone to deal with at that time, you know, putting the house to sale and attorneys left and right. It was just so much happening that I think part of me died that day in the car as I was sitting sobbing there in the, <laughs> at Vons. I was like, oh God, this is not happening. And it happened. And it wasn't like I was never hungry or broke before. I had gone through that, but when you look back and your car sees you have two little ones, it's a different feeling. It's like you felt like a failure because you put your kids in that situation to begin with. What the hell is wrong with you? And I was so angry at myself. But in that moment, I realized I had to make some really tough choices. I mean, looking back, I wish I had been more aggressive with my settlement. There were choices that I made, and I knew that I made it out of love for my children in the long term and but at that moment I also realized you know what I'm given a second chance today I may not have anything in my bank account but I know what I want to do if I do have money again and I knew that I needed to to lead a simpler healthier life a cleaner life a more meaningful life for them and and I gave myself a deadline to rebound I said 20 months to rebuild and I, I remember asking a lot of friends for advice. And I realized that I shouldn't have done that too because it only confused me even more. And including from my sister. And my sister can tell you all the advice she, she gave me. I threw it out the window. <laughs> so what I did was I, I turned really into it. I was very quiet for the first 12 months. I became very still. I said to myself, you know, you are your mother's child. Not only will you survive this, you will become formidable. Focus on the kids, their joys are my joys, their pains are my pains, focus on them and everything will be okay. And it took a while. You know, can you imagine that you, you know, you have friends and family asking you, go take a job, you'll make $100,000. I'm like, oh my God, that's what I used to make a month. And then you go like, what the hell is happening here? And then, you know, and, and you're trying to keep something going still but you can't because your brain is fractured, you know, and your heart is fractured. I even thought, you know, I was joking to my sister one day, Uber driver, I have to remove the car seats, you know, and I thought of all sorts of shit, okay, Kate, I thought so many things just so that I could make this go forward, <laughs> but I of course, 20 months later, I released and published my book, huh, what is it, yeah. where did you get, where did you get your strength from doing this, so that was 2016, and look at you now, you launched a book, I know. and yeah, so how, uh, the where book, did you get your strength? 
<laughs> so the book deal came right like a year before the divorce. The, the book deal came a year before. So they had given me some money up from my publisher. And I remember every, like a year later, they're like, where's the book now? And I'm like, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working. I, this is a book to teach people how to lead a meaningful life. My life is fucked up right now. Leave me alone. And then the publisher's like, okay, you're right. We're packing off. So it took me a while to figure that piece out, to really look into how I want to write this book. And thankfully, the book was not part of the divorce settlement, which is great. Um, but um, but I, I what as 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 you know, when I published the book, everything kind of changed for me. Um, it repositioned. It's almost like I reinvented myself, uh, and it gave me a new way of looking at things. And here I am trying to teach people how to create a meaningful life. I really had to go through fire to figure that piece out so when i went out and started talking to people about creating impact creating meaning what is the value behind that and all that i think people listen more because they go like wow this woman had gone through so much we gotta listen to what she has to say and it became more authentic i wasn't even lying i was just telling people yeah i was broke i have a bank statement here to show you that i had two dollars and fifteen cents left in my account and then fast forward you know I have a lot more zeros behind that but it was a long fight and a long journey, but I also became very spiritual. It's almost like I meditated a ton. I just had to clear all of that and calm the hell down and be a present mom for my children, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you go through that tragedy, I mean, like, really, like, hard, whether it's business or family issues, that's when you really think of what is important in your life, right? And you want yes. something more, you know, meaningful or more, like, more subtle. I mean, we, I think when you go through that, you just don't want to do the hard thing. You just want to be gentle with yourself. Yes, and I think it helped me reset my moral compass. I have a whole new way of looking at things now. And even the way I interact with businesses and my clients, I'm very, very picky of who I work with. It's almost like I am very grounded in my conviction of how I want to do things. And, you know, imagine that, Kate, when you, and I noticed that you and I are business people. We know when people can sniff desperation. Mm -hmm. We know there are people out there who, when times are bad, they get really desperate and they can be taken advantage of. And I had so many wolves around me. I had had so many indecent proposals around me. And at that time, I realized that, you know, I can't be making these decisions based on short-term gain because whatever that I'm doing is going to impact my children. I don't want them to, to look at me like, Mama, what did you do? You know, like I wanted it to be like, Mama, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> so, so when I make those decisions, I, I, I realized that, Going through all that really gave me this perspective of what my moral compass is, mm -hmm. what are the things that I will not do, what are the things that I enjoy doing, and what are the things that I welcome in my life. And then it got me to another set, like, who are in my tribe that I can really trust? That, you know, when you're, in, when you're in stress, when you're in PTSD mode, or when you're in trauma, when you're in crisis, we make lousy decisions. Not because we're not smart, not because, we, you know, it's just that you have so much to deal with that even if you're at the most zen 
your decision making is a little off. And it's good to have people who are really there and not want anything from you, but the best for your well-being for you and your children should be there to be kind of like a sounding board, right? To go like, Mel, I don't think this is a good idea for you to do this. And so until today, I have those three people. I call them my holy trinity. Because <laughs> they all have very different, different take, but they're like my, my holy trinity. When I have to make really challenging, hardcore decisions, I go to each one of them. I get my input. And then I make my decisions in a way where as long as it's still aligned with my core and I'm not compromising or anything, it's a good one. And of course, sometimes I piss them off. They're like, you don't listen. And I'm like, well, I got to process this because look, I've been, you know, independent since I was 19. I make my own decisions, you know. <laughs> Who are these three um, core person? Are they your mentor, your friends, or a colleague? So... They are, I, I don't want to name names, but one of them is definitely, um, well, two of them. One of them is my sister, of course. Mm -hmm. Always the one giving me the white rice, my sister. Till today, she'll order food when she knows I'm overworked. I'll order you something to eat. <laughs> so she's always taking care of me. And I have my writer, whom I've been working with for 20 plus years. She is my, my go-to kind of North Star, like my Zen person. And, and, you know, and, and these three people, and then of course my spiritual guru, I call him my Yoda. So I have these people who will guide me to make decisions based on, you know, like my Yoda will always say things like, make the decisions based on who you truly are. If you're about love, then make it out of love. Don't make it out of anger or hate, right? And then uh, my writer will be the one that is guiding me and going like, Hmm, is this impacting you now or is it in the future? Like, let's evaluate. And of course, my sister is the protector. She's like the general. <laughs> like, don't come near now unless you pass these tests. <laughs> yeah. So I have that. Uh, you know, and, I, and I collect mentors throughout the years too. Like people always collect shoes and handbags. I collect mentors. I really go out and I seek them. And I, and I, and I manifest them and they always appear and, and they, you know, I love like, you know, I'll, I'll, a good friend, Hazel, right? I consider her my mentor in that, many ways because I remember sitting out here and I would tell her, like, I have so much on my plate. And all she said was, make your bloody plate bigger. <laughs> Why is it so hard now? I'm like, you're right. She's like, you're just trying to shove everything in a little tiny bowl. And I'm like, you're right. <laughs> but it's just like having those really wise people around you that would just like shift your mindset just one degree and it's enough for me and so i go around collecting these little nuggets and they are like my tribe yeah, yeah. it's it's i mean we can't live without our tribe i mean i rely on eo friends of eo my forum mate when you're in an emergency like we need to have a community or else yeah. you know no one's gonna help us but no exactly yeah. and then know when to ask for help too right it's like i'm such a proud person no, and it, you know what? As a woman, most of us, in the beginning, I really don't like to ask help because I'm embarrassed. But now that I'm more open of sharing your, ish, I mean, you know, whatever you need, you'll be surprised how many generous people that are willing to give yes. you time and really great advice. So, like, I have maybe 20 that I could, I could just share whatever that is. And uh, it's nice to have a community right now. Yeah, like, and they don't judge you. That's the thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like putting yourself out there safely, right? In, in, in an environment where you feel safe, you feel supported. 
I think that's the key because I think Brene Brown about she talked about how like you don't take advice from people who hasn't been in an arena and then you only take it from people that have already been there. I, I try to do that a lot because I know that, you know, I would ask advice from people who have taught my friends and, and they're my friends, but they have not done this. They haven't, they don't know what it's like to build something from scratch and to lose it all in a day. You don't know what it's like, you know, when you have people depending on your, on their, you know, their paycheck to survive and they are taking care of other people's family. And you just have all these things, you know, being an entrepreneur, that's the thing, right? People think that it's so easy. Yes. Some days are easy. No, <laughs> most days are not. But you wake up and you still do it anyway with a smile and you're so excited, right? Because I'm, I'm always excited. I always wake up and I'm like, yay, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do this, you know. Well, with this current situation. Oh, Harris, here. <laughs> so cute. Pour him some chips. <laughs> so cute. Hello. Oh, my God. Tyler. Don't eat too much of this, okay? I love just, hey, that's why we can do this. I know. Live and, you know, feeding kids at the same time. That's what Exactly. I, you know, I, I have to bring this up about kids and, and women in business. Um, when I, and there were three or four incidents, and I can give you an example, a really quick one. When I was pregnant with uh, Evan, my first one, um, mm -hmm. I didn't tell any of my clients that I was pregnant because I had just gotten this huge contract from Comcast, okay? And I was really nervous because a lot of my friends were like, you can't tell them that you're pregnant and then you're trying to take on this massive project. And then so I didn't tell them, but they saw me getting fatter and fatter because, you know, from <laughs> shoulder up, because like, I was looking fatter and fatter on Zoom calls, right? I was like, oh my God, they must know that I'm pregnant. So finally, um, the morning when I, my water broke, I was hovering over the conference table and I remember telling my ex and I'm like, we're going to download the Zoom thing into this iPad thing because I'm going to the hospital right now. We're going to make sure that they can reach me. And then he's like, woman, you're having a baby. And I'm like, yes, but we have 50K coming in. So we got to like make sure that we can do this. And so I did, I downloaded everything. I wasn't, you know, in my garb, you know, like in the hospital. And I was still taking calls. And then two days later, they're like, Mel, were you in the hospital when you were having conference call with us? I'm like, yeah, I gave birth to a nine pound baby. They were like, oh my God. I'm like, yeah, I'm a little loopy now. So let's keep this really short. But well, I'll get to, uh, you know, the meeting tomorrow. I, I, I yeah, I'm a lot of painkillers right now. But it was crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, how, that's. You know, that's how we roll, right? The yeah, and that's how you roll. And I think over the years, people were always saying that, oh, you know, you work from home, you can't manage multi-million dollar projects. And I think because I kept on doing it, I'll beat having a child, I'll beat, you know, uh, you know, just gave birth and I still delivered. So I, I just wanted, you know, people to know that it can be done if you want to. I'm not asking, you know, you to go do that because it's insane because I was being very, like, you know, looking back, I was like, I was not a responsible parent, you know, but I needed the money because we were trying to buy a home. I needed the money. Um, but yeah, it's it's all of that. And, and I remember one day a CFO of a public company called me and my, my youngest, the one that you just met, he had a meltdown and he was knocking on the door because he wanted to see me and I was on a call and he knocked himself and he was bloody right oh and then I was really embarrassed on the phone and the CFO said to me Mel I have three boys I work from home as well 
go take care of your child and we'll continue this call later okay and i was like oh my god you're the sweetest person like i i thought i gave myself that that you know stigma what it shouldn't have been like he was so nice about it i'm like oh well you should have said so then <laughs> and, and now I, this is gonna be our this is gonna be our the new norm that's why that this is the new norm now it's okay to mess up and be a little unpolished at times it's okay but i was so hard on myself i was like so stressed out and i asked the nanny please you know calm him down and then at the end of the day he's like i don't care you need to go take care of your child first i'm like yeah 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 <laughs> go take care of my child yes oh my god after this call people are gonna text it mel is a lousy mother like what the hell is wrong with her <laughs> all right i have a, a last question here how do you what do you see your as your place or purpose in life? I just know that after all that has happened in my life, you know, all, all, all of it, the ups and downs, being a hungry child, being broke and rebuild and being broke again, and then having to rebuild at the age of, I don't know, 38, close to 40 years old, having to redo all of that again. I, I don't think that it was, I think it's a blessing. Can I just say that in many ways? It's, it's a blessing um, that it has given me this, and I hate to use this word, but I almost felt like I have superpowers now. <laughs> like I am blessed and I wake up every morning and I feel like I need to offer hope, light, and actionable insights to help others in every way I can. And whether or not it's through my work, my book, my keynote, or my designs, I just feel like I need to bring that. You know, I wake up every day and I'm so blessed. Okay, in so many, my, I, I still have my eyesight. I have my limbs active. I have my breath, you know, in Buddhism, it's like, we always believe that your breaths are being granted. And I, I, you know, so I'm being granted this ability to breathe and I have beautiful kids. So, and I have, of course, roof over my head and white rice, right? Plenty of white rice now. We can survive in white rice. Yes, I love white rice. A little bit of spam will be enough. But, and, and I've been given this almost a second chance. And I want to be able to use every moment to be productive. You know, people always ask me like, what is your intrinsic motivator, right? Like I always feel like it's, for me, it's time. Like I feel like when I wake up, I just <laughs> think that the first thing I do when I wake up is I text my writer, we must do this now. And she's like, uh oh, here it is again. I'm like, that's not enough time. No, I, 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 and through and then through this deep meditation and breathing and I, the more i become aware of my surrounding my motivation has become intrinsically tied to the universe i know i'm very woo woo i'm sorry it's just no no i, I i'm into that and and, and I, I yeah it's like get clarity yes and i feel like there is this urgency that's nagging at me in the morning and it really pushes me and compels me to do something and accomplish it within the amount of time that I have during the day. And of course, I look at my children and I feel even more to see to leave them a world that's beautiful and loving and kind, you know, not only as a mom, but I feel like as a global citizen, we have to do that, right? We have to, we have to have this conscious awareness, a broader sense of purpose, not just my 
daily purpose, but a broader sense of purpose to create and elevate consciousness. And I know I, I've been telling people, you gotta meditate. You know, there's this like global meditation a few days ago, <laughs> but, but yes, I, 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 and, and I don't know if that answers your question, but yes, that's, that's my motivation. I love that. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. And I know you are going to share, you get, you told me you're going to do some summit with Andrea. Yes. More so, about that. Where's that at? Okay. So, you know, this, we're in this really unprecedented times right now. And a lot of people are afraid. A lot of people are scared, fear, all those words, right? All those words and words have power. And I try not to use them unnecessarily, but as a descriptor, those are the things that are happening in the world and people are feeling that. And I don't want to undermine that feeling. Now, I know that you had asked me like, you know, what, what scares me the most, right? In this, in this COVID situation. And I feel, you know, like a parent, I always worry about my children's well-being, given COVID or not. That's my number one fear for them is like, are they okay? Are they eating okay? You know, they have enough food, you know, are they feeling good? But here are the things. I, I do feel extreme pain and compassion for our world. And I feel that I need to do something positive in every moment to improve this, to improve this energy, right? And this is going to take a collective effort. And I, and I want this collective effort to be rigorous, to be collaborative. And I, you know, and, and even Kate, like even in the past few weeks, we have all these people throwing uh, webinars, virtual happy hours, and people like hours and hours of drinking and complaining. And I, and I couldn't handle that. I wanted things to be more actionable. I wanted a framework on how to bring clear optimism pure altruism and hope into this discussion. So my team and I are putting together this summit called the Futurum Forum. This Futurum Forum is, it's, it's, a, it's a complimentary forum. We have great, great, amazing speakers who are contributing their time to be our panelists. And it's done virtually. And it's going to have about uh, five key panelists and an amazing keynote speaker, by the way. Uh, and then we're going to talk about resiliency, reimagining the new world. We're going to talk about uh, heart-based leadership. Um, and then I'm opening up the floor uh, to other experts and thought leaders to host and facilitate roundtable discussion. I want to bring them in to give them an opportunity to share their thoughts. And this is all done virtually. Um, using this new platform called Remo. And, um, and the only thing I'm asking for people to do is to contribute to the Doctors Without Borders fund that I'm trying to raise. I'm trying to raise about 10,000. And all of my speakers and facilitators agree that we, they want to offer this for free, but they just want the donation made to all of our amazing doctors out there. So the event is on uh, April 23rd. It's about 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific time. I have very limited seats. But I have about 200 seats available and um, we're accepting applica application. It's an open thing. It's just that we need to accommodate a lot of people right now. But we want to empower small business owners like you and myself because we're the backs of the economy. We're job creators. I want people 
to leave having this hope that they can visualize and create new changes that can be celebrated. So that's, that's where I'm at. Well, thank you. Well, that's, that's amazing for you, for you creating that. And that's so meaningful and we all needed that. So um, if you can give us the link so we yes. can invite people, I would love to be part of it. Something that's, you know, I love that um, the doctors, I've seen some in the, in the, on TV. Yes, Doctors Without Borders are like the, the organization where they, you know, all these amazing doctors are volunteering their services and their time and their expertise to the world. You know, we're not just talking about this pandemic uh, being in the U.S., but it's all over the world. And I've always had this really deep admiration for the work that they do because um, I, I know that I, I, I can't handle anything <laughs> that is remotely, you know, like I'm going to do with bodily functions. I, uh, but I, I just have so much respect for them. And they are truly our heroes right now. And whatever it takes, right? You know, I was talking to my team today. How do, how do we know that people are going to give money? And I'm like, we got to trust. We got to trust that we're putting out good energy. They were doing this for people that this were bringing in all these amazing people to speak and share their insights for free because these people typically charge us a ton of money, right? The keynote, they're doing it as, you know, because they want this to be better for others. This is not, this is not the time for us to be nitpicking right now. We just want a collective effort and uh, we hope that people will donate, you know, to, to our cause here. So I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful. <laughs> I'd be happy to share your link. And Mill, where, where, where can they find you? If you could give us Yes, so my, they can find me on my website. I have two websites. Uh, Mellim.com is spelled M-E-L-L-I-M, M as in Mary, dot com. And then they can also find my consulting website called Maspera Group. It's M-A-S-P-I-R-A-G-R-O-U-P-E, masperagroup.com. They can find me on social. It's uh, M Melim Sovereign. There's a whole story behind there because I always feel like I have <laughs> now got my sovereignty <laughs> post the divorce, post colonialism, and yes, I'm on my own now. Uh, yeah, so I, I uh, ping me and we can discuss about it. I would love uh, to get uh, more speakers for our next summit. I'm already playing next summit. We are looking for anyone that has connection to uh, Navy SEAL type of leadership training. Okay. If you guys know of an ex-Navy SEAL guy or maybe a current Navy SEAL guy that has gone through really, really aggressive, tough training um, amidst chaos, I, I'm searching for that. I'm searching for high performers who are, like, they've been in the trenches and they know how to navigate that. And, and I want to learn from them how, how they can respond because the whole idea of leadership right now is mm-hmm. how to respond, recover, and thrive in a very short amount of time and under extreme circumstances right now so that's what I'm trying to learn for myself even yeah yeah well thank you so much I'm, I'm so honored to have you here and thank yes. you for spending your time and for being open I appreciate you okay thank I love you so much, Kate. okay oh. bye okay thank bye. you thank you we hope you enjoyed the show don't forget to rate review and subscribe and visit katehancock.com so you don't miss out on the next episode.